five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. That was the Motor City Madman, Ted Nugent, Snakeskin Cowboys. Who the hell you think you are? I'm not sure why I played that song this morning. I do like it, though. Um, I was just gonna, looking up uh, Ted Nugent's background a little bit here. I know a fair amount about uh, Ted Nugent. But one of the things I did not know is that apparently Meatloaf sang with him at one point. I did not know that. That came as news to me. Uh, lead vocals there, Derek St. Holmes, which is a great rock and roll name, isn't it? It's like right out of uh, Spinal Tap. Derek St. Holmes. That's a, that's a Spinal Tap name. As you can see today, if you're listening to the podcast, by the way, I apologize for not getting yesterday's podcast up on the site. It was a crazy day, man. Yesterday, yesterday was just a crazy day, just in terms of time. I, I don't know where the fucking time goes. It just goes. I have, and I have literally nothing in some ways to show for except my interactions with other people when I do my readings and consultations, which is fine, right? But it's just incredible, like, where the time goes. So let me tell you my latest time dilemma. My latest time dilemma. Now, I'm trying to get back to the gym because it's been a while since I've been to the gym, and I need to get back to the gym. My body just doesn't feel right. And I got a new phone. I've had this phone for a while now. Thank you. Dr. S. Uh, and not all my music transferred over to this phone. And of course, I want to go to the gym and I want to listen to my music, right? And I want all my music. I don't want just like a quarter of the songs for whatever reason, not registering. So I, I actually hit on it, click on a song. And it says that I have to sync my phone, excuse me, I have to sync my phone to my computer. Okay, I'll do that. So I plug my phone in to my computer and my computer's not recognizing my phone. So I can't go to the sync button in iTunes. I know these are first world problems, but they're significant. So I call Apple. I'm thinking, uh, you know, and this is where I'm getting ready to go to the gym. 
So I call Apple and I get a very nice young woman from, I believe, probably India or maybe Pakistan. Has a very distinguished uh, accent in the voice. Nice woman. But this winds up being above her pay grade because she can't help me. So now she's got to escalate. And I get a really nice guy. And eventually I find out that he is working with me from Toronto. So this is a really interesting journey through globalist business corporation application. Started in Mumbai, probably. Then I go to Toronto. And here I am in Texas. So we go through a bunch of steps and I have most of my music, in fact, all my music on another computer. It's an older Mac. It runs really slow. It's just a, you know, challenged. So he walks me through, here's what you're going to have to do now. You're going to have to upload all your music. I have 15,000 songs on that Mac. You have to upload all your music onto a hard drive. And when it gets copied to the hard drive, here's what you have to do. So we're working on this. Anyway, this whole process, which is not complete, by the way, because I still have to have a follow-up call with this dude. Nice guy. Really nice guy. Um, and I have to have a follow-up call with him today to complete the process. That was, I started at 4 o'clock or 4.30 my last phone call with him was 9.30 my time. Okay, so five hours, and I'm trying to do some other, but my computers are locked up now. It's just, it was just the whole thing was just so, yeah. This is, I've been, my issue with activity and time is off the charts. I, there's no time. I get up, I do some things, I try to do more things, and then the day is gone. And this has been a theme for the last couple of years now. And it doesn't seem to be abating. Like, like time is just this weird construct at this point. And uh, I, I mean, for me, if I'm going to get anything done, I probably have to get up at like four in the morning just so I can have like a, like a five hour day before I do this show. It's just crazy. But then I, when I go to bed at night, I'm not one of these people that just lights out. I don't, I've never really been that way. It takes me a while to get to sleep. Anyway, enough about me. Let's find out more about you and what's going on with you today. Welcome to the show. I don't mean to sound like a grumpy old man when it comes to time, but I'm sounding like a grumpy old man. It's just bothersome. All right, we got uh, Empath. What's going on, Empath? Garrett Brooks. Hey, Garrett. Good morning to you. Miss Nikia in the house. Kelly B. Uh, if you feel so inclined, please pray for the Gatlinburg Pigeon Forger of Tennessee. The mountains are on fire. Ah, Jesus. That is, you know, that's the theme. They're going to they're gonna try to burn us out now. I've been talking about this. This is a, this is a Bolshevik tactic. Burn the population out. All right, Ryan, what's going on, my man? Kelly says one fire loan is only 5% contained. Yeah. Queen Lisa. What's going on, Queen Lisa? Door at the door. Didn't that burn a few years ago? Kelly says yes in 2016. 
many people still recovering from those fire outbreaks. Jeez. There's JJ. What's going on, JJ? Beth Berry, good morning. All in prayers going up for Tennessee. All right, we're just imagining. I am visualizing right now thunderclouds coming over Tennessee and just soaking, soaking the 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 uh, the, the hot and burning landscape and turning them into smoldering coals and into ashes. I am visualizing that. I'm a better visualizer than a prayer, I think. Let it be done. Uh, Sony, what's going on, Sony? Oh, yes, I'm on with Nish tonight. Isn't that right? That's right. I am. I am. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for reminding me. <laughs> oh, man. By the way, I think we wound up raising close to six or $7,000 for Leon. So again, thank you everybody who stepped up and really helped him out. It's a great group. Fantastic. Uh, let's see. Here's my man. Rue nine, PETA one, but the snakeskin cowboy part. Speaking of PETA, get on up here. Here he is. The astrological cat. Do you have anything you want to say to anybody today? Got any, got any news for the world? Huh? It's your show. Uh, let's see. Lot living so near to the closest major air, airport to the area. We saw a lot of helicopters with water buckets. Attach plenty help. I'm envisioning thunderclouds, storms. Okay, if anyone would like a link to Nisha's show tonight with Robert, there you go. JJ will hook you up. Let's see, he must be a Leo with all. Ted Nugent is a Sagittarius. If you watch him during that performance, he's you could. He's got the look of somebody who's just like completely wired, although he does not do drugs. Never did drugs. Play Stranglehold. I like Stranglehold. Thank you, JJ. Uh, let's see. Christy in the house. What's going on, Christy? We're in a time warp. Yes, we are. We work out listening to Robert. Pump it, pump it, pump it, pump it, pump it, pump it, pump it. That's it. Let's go. One more, one more. Push it, push it. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Again, into box, just refresh. Pina. Oh, well, whatever. I'm the administrator of my phone. Uh, Steve, what's going on, Steve? I know someone who threw away his CDs after downloading to a hard drive that crashed. Threw away the CDs? You could sell those CDs. Never throw away the hard copies. I agree. Freeman has a nice vinyl collection. He's a cancer. Cancers are collectors. Or buy an Android. Android is... I had an Android. I had a... I had, I had a... Uh, whatchamacallit? Uh... Not an LG, the other one. 
the other one, not an LG. Samsung. I had a Samsung once. I liked that phone. It was, I thought it was a better phone. I think Apple's shit. In fact, I was telling this to the guy who was really nice yesterday. I was saying, when I was young, because I grew up on Apple, right? I mean, I lived in California. Uh, Apple was in Cupertino. And my first real contact with a computer I came to computers late. I didn't really trust computers. I was kind of a Luddite. And I came to computers initially in 1988. That was the first time I really kind of got into the computer world. And I worked at a magazine and we had the little Apple SEs, Mac SEs, right? The ones that looked like droids. And they were really just like word processing machines that didn't have a lot of function, but they were cool little boxes. And that's what I, that's what I started my computer journey on were those little computers. And I remember um, this writer one time, Alan Goldman, who was a really, really good writer. He wrote about uh, food and alcohol and libations and things like that for the magazine. He was very talented, kind of an irascible old guy. Anyway, he sent in his text one time through ASCII. So it was the first time I'd ever seen this thing where you could send text over. Now, remember, this is an anal these were analog lines. And uh, so the, the text would show up uh, ultimately in the computer, but it would take forever. Like, I think the ASCII file would take something like four or five hours to just come across the line, right? So... I use, a, I, you know, that, that computer became kind of a part of my life. Just in terms of real relationship with Apple, PageMaker, those sorts of things. And um, Apple was kind of innovative, right? It was, it was kind of innovative. Although at that time, there were a number of other computer companies that were competing with Apple and uh sort of the Microsoft gang. I remember Amiga, Commodore, Amiga. Amiga was one of these computers that uh, graphic designers really liked. Like you could do things with Amigas that you couldn't do with other computers, even Apple. It was cheaper. So it was, it was kind of competitive. But I, I grew up in the Apple world. And, uh, and eventually I, you know, got my own little personal... Apple computer and I would you know, type on it and word process with it and write articles with it, all that kind of stuff. And Apple was fairly, fairly innovative for a while. Uh, Steve Jobs had a very interesting relationship with uh, novelty and design. And then of course, you know, the whole thing, the whole, the whole calamity with Apple happens and Steve Jobs gets kicked out and they go through that really, really weird phase where they have uh, eventually, it was Gil Emilio winds up running the company. And it was, it was, that was the time to buy Apple stock. Let me tell you, that was the period to buy Apple stock. It was so bad that Apple had a couple of licensing deals with two other companies. One was Motorola and the other was Umax. Umax was this Apple clone company that set up and Apple was actually selling 
the rights to their operating system for these two other companies. So Motorola and Umax were, were creating these Apple clones, which was really weird. And they were okay. I mean, they were just like, okay, we're going to take the Apple operating system. We'll put it in our own box. But that was the strange, strange time for Apple. John Scully came in after Steve Jobs and John Scully had been the uh, CEO. I think it was Pepsi. He was terrible. He, he was absolutely terrible. And then eventually Jobs comes back in and saves the day and creates this whole line of, you know, that it, it just really interesting <clears throat> and aesthetically pleasing. Like the old, you know, the old IMAX that were the rainbow color, they were blue and they were uh, amber and they were teal, right? I think they may have had like a, maybe a purple one. Those things were kind of cool. Like they looked cool. There was something retro future about them. And then, and I still have it here somewhere. I have the uh, the lunar the lunar landing module iMac. You know, it's got the looks like it comes right out of the seventies, and it's got that white base, and it's got the you know the 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 thick kind of chrome neck that you know extends into the screen. I have one of those still. I don't know if it works. It's kind of just a, a museum. So Apple always had this very interesting kind of niche. It looked in, it looked cool. Some of the programs, if you were a designer, were cool, right? And then it, all of a sudden, Steve Jobs dies, <laughs> and Apple goes to. I mean, it was it, it was a lot a lot of Apple stuff was kind of smoke and mirrors like, but it was still cool. Like it looked cool. It, it, it was just different. And the other thing about Apple. And this is the one thing that it really had in its um, kind of favor was that because it is a single process oriented computer, it was, it was almost immune to computer viruses. And if you had a, a, a Microsoft box or PC box, the thing that made them so fast is it would, they would, multi-process so they were doing all these things simultaneously and it made them very fast but it also made them vulnerable to uh, computer viruses whereas with Macs do one thing at a time and it was slower and at the same time like the whole thing with a virus right it was like over here distract 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 and you had all these processes and they just kind of all go over there to deal with whatever's happening over there. And then the back door is open and the virus comes in through the back door and that's how you get a virus. And that's how you actually do a virus in a cell. It's the same thing. So Mac had that on its side because it was, you know, all these other people running around you know, trying to get their patch for whatever kind of was it Norton or whatever, whatever antivirus program. We had a Mac and eh, look at you guys. You're running around trying to fix things and have this patch and that patch and Norton and McAfee and whatever. We're just running our Macs, right? But now, if I if I got in the computer world now, I would definitely go PC. And I told this guy last night. I said, look, it's not even close. Why would I spend all this money on a MacBook Pro when I could you know, get a PC? and even do a lot of the stuff that I want to for myself. Whereas with MacBook Pros now, you can't do that. They're like the John Deere computers. You got to send them in. You can't work on them yourself.
anyway, I didn't finish what I needed to do yesterday. So it's still on my plate for today with all this music. But you were right there with me the whole time. He was he was lending his moral support. All right, who else do we have here? Uh, Jacqueline, she uh, commiserates with me. I feel you, Robert. I have the same issue with time. My days are so full. Uh, let's see. We had rain last night, but not enough. I just solved that problem. I am a rainmaker. I am a rainmaker, actually. When I was living in California, it was actually, when I was living in California, before I left California, way back at the dawn of time in the year 2012, it rained a lot. And Texas had been in a severe drought. And then I moved to Texas. Well, I like to include my son in on this because he's part of it. And I moved to Texas. And what happens, we have like three straight years of heavy, intense deluge, biblical proportions, so intense that uh, Wimberley just gets absolutely flooded. There, there's like weird deaths. and It's just crazy. I've never seen anything like it before. You know, we would get rain in California, but not like that. Flash flooding, all that shit. That went, that went on from basically, it really started in, um, started to happen in 2012. 2013, it was really intense. 2013, 2014, 2015, and even 2016, all those years were marked by intense downpours. And last year was pretty wet, but this year it has been dry as a bone. And windy, which is not great. It dries everything out. All right, who else do we have today? Uh, Mr. Kid, David Hawk. What's going on, David? Uh, Rocky, nice wet layer of snow here this morning. Should light a match to it, see if it burns. So handsome. I always wish he had a little bow tie. I have a picture of him where he's wearing a, an ascot. <laughs> I put a, I put a uh, scarf, one of those... Uh, Put a scarf on him one day. He looks very, very uh, professorial. Uh, let's see. I'm surprised that Smokies are that dry. They're, well, I think with all the chemtrails, you know what they do? The chemtrails are a desiccant because they're, they've got aluminum and uh, barium and iron oxide, and it dries everything out. So the chemtrails are an accelerant, and, and that's why these fire conditions can be so intensely hot and flammable. You know, we've heard in the past these stories where they've had these fires and the, the firemen who are fighting the fires talk about how they've never had to deal with fires that extreme and that hot before. They're not normal fires because the planet has been let, has been doused with a desiccant accelerant. It's, it's a fact. Uh, let's see. Who else do we have here? Fran says drought conditions in North Carolina. Boxcast, I think Boxcast is Puritan. They've got the they've got the Puritan program in terms of 
filters. G-rated. Let's see, I remember when going to cordless phones was a big deal. Leon's goal was is ten thousand dollars. So far, he's raised nine thousand four hundred and twenty. How about that? Uh, Jacqueline says most of my blind clients have iPhones. I asked to work on them all the time. I think I need a class on the iPhone. I use LG or Samsung. Try rooting an apple. Jake, what's going on, Jake? Can't wait for your book to come out. Can't wait to get you on the show and uh, share your story. It's going to be a great one. Um, I love my old IMAX. They were, they were cool. They were very cool. You are the walrus. Do we need a class in time bending? Yes, I would agree. I should come visit the Appalachian. I should. I'd I think I'd like it. Many states across the U.S. are in red flag zones. We have snow that looks like styrofoam pellets. Uh, no, no coincidence there. What's going on, Christine? San Diego checking in. I was uh, taking a little stroll down memory lane last night. Imagine that. I've been getting into like baseball nostalgia. I don't know why. I go through these little periods where I get uh, inspired to just watch something or take, take a bunch of content in. And I think I was on this video and it was the uh, 1984 season, which I remember vividly actually, because the Detroit Tigers were so freaking dominant, like really, really dominant that year. And I had been a Detroit Tiger fan since I was a kid. And then I don't know why. I mean, I do know why. But I, I'm not from Michigan. I grew up in California. So when I first got exposed to baseball, and I've told this story before, it was 1968, and I think my grandfather showed me the, the sporting pages in the newspaper. And I could read. I could read really well. And I was eight years old, and I started to uh, read the – you know, the sporting green, which is, it was actually green. The paper was green. So I'd read it and I got really into sports and baseball. And I noticed that the, the team that was in first place. And back then you had two leagues and you had basically one team at the top of one league and one team at the bot at the top of the other league. And those two teams would win the regular season. And then they would, face each other in the world series since then it's changed you have divisions you have playoffs you have wild cards you have all these permutations of that but back then it was you know one team and then one team and that one team that was really popular that year well not really popular but they were successful was with the detroit tigers and they had denny mcclain who was the last pitcher to win 30 games which seems like that'll never happen again that you you could bet that there will be no pitcher that will ever 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 win 30 games. They can barely win 20 games now. A good year for a pitcher might be 17, 18 wins. That's because of how they've situationally pitched with pitchers. Uh, and back then, the pitching staff was four pitchers. So you'd be pitching every fourth day, which meant you'd pitch more games. Now there are five pitchers in a pitching staff. 
So you're pitching every fifth day, which means you're going to pitch less games, which means nobody's ever going to get to 30 games. But Denny McLean had his cap down, right? He, he looked like an outlaw. But this guy is cool. And he turned out to be <clears throat> a very interesting character. So that's when I got into the Tigers, and I followed them all the way to the World Series, which was in a very exciting World Series. They were down three games to nothing. They came back. First team ever in World Series history to be down three games to nothing and come back and win the World Series by winning four straight. I also was kind of an A fan, developed my relationship with the Oakland A's. Reggie Jackson went off that year in the first half before the All-Star break. Looked like he had a shot at breaking the all-time home run record in season by Babe Ruth. So the A's had just moved to the Bay Area. They just moved. That was their inaugural season. It was 1968. Before then, it was just the San Francisco Giants. And um, so I was, you know, pretty familiar with, I was a Tiger fan. So 84, the Tigers were just so dominant. But the other story that year was the San Diego Padres. And the San Diego Padres were a really unique team because they had a collection of young players, particularly pitchers, and some older veteran players. Like they picked up Steve Garvey, they picked up Greg Nettles, they picked up Goose Gossage, <clears throat> and they did really well. But there was this one, one player on the San Diego Padres whose name was Eric Shaw. And Eric Shaw was really, really interesting. Like he was, he was somebody that was just too smart for his milieu in a lot of ways. And Eric Shaw was, um, how would I describe him? He was a Christian, so he was you know, super Christian. Um, but he was also into um, physics. He was also into philosophers like Kierkegaard. He had a very unique kind of perspective um, on the universe uh, and on the world. And he was friends with two other pitchers, Dave Dravecki and Mark Thurmond. So they all hung out together. And one time they were at a, I think they were at a uh, John Birch Society, they being Dravecki and Shao, maybe Thurmond, but they were at a John Birch Society, I guess, what would you call it? Like a, a fair or an expo or something like that. And they had a booth there. And this was in, I believe, Del Mar. And word got out that those guys, were, but it was really about Eric Shaw. So then the media began to accuse Eric Shaw of being a racist in all the things. That, so he was one of the early casualties of cancel culture. And because he has such a tough upbringing in a lot of ways, his father was really hard on him. He wanted him to be a major league baseball player and he kind of drilled it into him. And those kinds of things can be, instructive and helpful, but they can also be very, very damaging. Uh, there are dozens and dozens of stories of successful athletes who have been driven by their parents and have really had a very difficult time. One is uh, Brian Bosworth. There's a great uh, 30 for 30 with Brian Bosworth and talking about his dad. And it's a really, it's a really touching, um, poignant show where he 
goes into a storage locker because he just put everything, all of his awards and all of his accolades, everything that was associated with football, he just put it in the storage locker. He didn't want to, he didn't want to deal with it. And this was a guy who became larger than life. He was a character, the boss. Anyway, Eric Shaw's father was kind of like that. And whether or not he was instrumental in shaping his character and his ability to be a successful pitcher and reach the major leagues, we'll never know. You can't really separate one out from the other. But there's also a really good chance that Eric Shaw was damaged goods because of his hardcore relationship with his father who was driving him. So he, Eric Shaw had this all or nothing. He was, there was no gray area with him. By the way, he was a Taurus. So you get a lot of the fixed kind of attributes with all the fixed signs. So he was in, but he was the first, in my estimation, casualty of, of in, in sports with cancel culture. And so I, I found this article at Eric Shaw, and it was, I think, the was it the Village Voice or Village News or something like that. And the article itself was okay. It got into some of the psychological issues around him. But the, the real telling part were the comments. And the comments were people that knew him. One guy uh, roomed with him, played minor league baseball with him. Another guy knew him uh, from his struggles with drugs and AA and things like that. Another guy was a, a personal friend. And they all spoke really highly of him. And one of them said, you cannot underestimate in a lot of ways what those charges against Eric Shaw did to him and labeling him a racist. And there was no absolute proof just because he went to a John Birch me, which by the way, the John Birch society is mostly concerned with things like communism, right? And how communism has created a army of foot soldiers. And I don't think there's, you know, I've talked about this before. Just look at, just look at the foot soldiers for communism. They're tied into the NAACP, which I've talked about, and the roots of the NAACP and how essentially a group that was led by W.E.B. Du Bois, Du Bois, and who was um, one of the first recruits into the Boulay Society, created a fractionalized segment whose sole goal was ultimately to use race over class, although class could be built into the whole race debate, race issue, to be divisive and destroy America from within. And I think they've been very successful. And, and you can see it today. And there's an evolution to the destruction of the country and the West. And, you know, I wasn't in in those John Birch meetings. 
I wasn't there, but I would assume that this was part of the dialogue. But was Eric Shaw racist? I don't think anybody on the San Diego Padres, and they had a lot of non-white players, Alan Wiggins, Gary Templeton, Tony Gwynn. They never said anything. So we could go back in time and look at the effects of cancellation. And they've been around. And Eric Shaw eventually took his life, committed suicide. And I'm not saying that the cancellation was the reason why he was a drug addict, because he was. He was he was doing speed balls. Um but I would say it, it contributed to his condition. And when you go through and read those comments, they're touching because there was a person there, right? He was very talented. Apparently he played guitar and was a really good guitar player. He was into Django Reinhardt. This was somebody who was fairly complex and other people would play music with him. And just, it's an absolute, absolute shame. And I, you know, maybe that was just the way he was hardwired and it was all a series of things coming together. But I guarantee you the accusations of him being a racist didn't help. Last night I was watching, uh, we're going to get to Joe Biden today. We're going to talk about the fatal shot because that's part of the JPEG or the, uh, the thumbnail is um, clone Biden. Uh, what do we do now? Oh, I'm getting another shot. We'll talk about that. Last night, Jason Whitlock went to the well for the third night in a row to talk about Will Smith. And there, there are some pictures out that look like uh, Chris Rock has a little pad on his face to absorb the blow. Whether he has a pad on his face or not, it could be. Will Smith just hit him with the tips of his fingers. And again, I think that something happened, planned, more than likely, because Will Smith gets to come out and be the, the protector, the protector of Jadabelle. And if you notice like what's been going on and I, and, and Jason hasn't really talked about this, but I think what Will Smith did, the stage part and then the unhinged part was in part a response to what Jason Whitlock and Delano Squires and Dave Shannon and Royce White have been talking about which is how uh, black men have become subservient and have placed the matriarchy, the matriarchy and the black matriarchy, which is a very powerful matriarchy, ahead of them. And, and what happens is that the people that get rewarded or the males that get rewarded in that 
system are the, the juicy smolets of the world. Or, you know, the, the, the dead version of Juicy Smollett, which would be George Floyd or Ahmed Arbery. Those are the men that get rewarded. It's not people like Jason Whitlock or it's not people like Royce White. So they, need to, they needed to have a response to that. And so the response is Will Smith. Oh, he's a protector. See? He's a protector. So Jason went to the wolf for the third time last night and I love Jason, but he, he just, he has a bit of hero worship. Like I'll see him, you know, it's a phase too, by the way, this happens during the awakening phase. Um, let's call it the reflection projection phase. So in the reflection projection phase, what people do is they look for people outside of themselves in the world, either in the media or in politics or in sports or in music, and they see this person who is supposedly speaking truth to power, like, oh, look, look at that person. They're on our team. They're waking up. We can hold them up, right? part of the mirror. Look, 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 look at them. Right. And really what you're doing is you're objectifying another person and projecting whatever thing you're going through onto them so that there's this anchor for your own opinion, your own truth in the quote unquote real world. We've all done this, right? And then, then guess what happens? Then we find out that these people are not who they say they are and they're a limited hang or whatever. It's like, yeah, kind of got let, let down there. How many times have you put your faith in somebody in the media or sports or whatever? And then they kind of go, we'll let you know happens. Jason, Jason, I think succumbs to this a lot. And um, he's looking for uh, validation. He's looking for a metric that proves that what he's talking about in the truth that he believes that is immutable inside of himself becomes extracted and put into the world, right? And we all have this. We all have a version of this in our own lives. And then you realize that the only thing that matters is what's inside of you, ultimately. So he's done this consistently with Martin Luther King, who is not, and Martin Luther King is just, he's not, he's not a great model. Sorry. He's just not. He was a plagiarist. Then again, so was Joe Biden. Um, Very strong indications of, violent relationships, sexually violent relationships with women. And I've talked about this before, that he was a trained Marxist. And I'll show you. Oh, by the way, I think I got into some flack with the whole Filipino cuisine thing. I... You know what? I'm going to go to a Jollibee. 
and I'm going to reassess my relationship with Filipino cuisine. I've checked in, and I, and I, and I, and I think that there's something inside of me that I, that I have to face with Filipino cuisine. So I'm going back. I'm going to go back. I'm going to find a Jollibee, and I'm going to have some chicken adobo. And I'll let you know how it goes. Okay, Martin Luther King. Um, oh, what was it? Is it the uh, Highlander School? I think it's the Highlander School. I've talked about this before. Let's see what we got here. Yeah, it's the Highlander Folk School. And um, let me just show you guys. Let me go back to... Uh, here we go. So just in case you've missed any of my past dives in the Highlander School, here's some images here. King speaks of the Highlander Folk School program, a look to the future address delivered at Highlander. The Highlander Research an education center. Uh, let's see. There we go. Let's look at this one. I have no idea what this website is about. Net Racial Nationalist Party of America. So this is actually true. Martin Luther King received his early training in civil disobedience at the Highlander Folk School in Mount Eagle, Tennessee. The Highlander Folk School was run by the Communist Party. King's photograph attending one of those sessions in 1957 is reproduced on this page. The notorious Bayard Rustin was named by King as his personal consultant. In a UPI news report on October 10, 1965, February 20, 1966, the following police report on Rustin was released to the public and stated, in part, Bayard Rustin has been convicted of sodomy, also for violations of the Selective Service Act, and was admitted member of the Young Communist League. So Martin Luther King was a proven plagiarist, which is how he earned his doctorate. So again, this is what I wanted to show you, right? So here we go. There's MLK, Training School for Communists. And you have a bunch of people here that are also in that picture. There's Martin Luther King. And one of the uh, other famous Highlander graduates was Rosa Parks. So what you had you, is you had a communist training center in Tennessee. And they were there to educate their, their charges in communist doctrinaire. That's number one. Number two, they were there to educate them on polemics and how to interact with the public and be disruptive. And so Jason Whitlock was talking about Rosa Parks and like, you know, her character and, and, you know, there was this young woman, apparently Claudette um, Cober or something like that. Sounds like Colbert, but it's not. And she 
was pregnant. She was young. She was black. And apparently she got up in front of the bus months before Rosa Parks did, but nobody talked about it. And Jason Whitlock said, well, they, who is they, they, they figured out that Rosa Parks had the character to do. Who's the, they, who, who's the, they that Jason's referring to? I don't know. I do know, actually, but I don't know if Jason knows. Maybe he does. I don't know. Maybe he knows more than I think he knows. But why is he promote? And, and again, I, lo- I love Jason Woodlock, and he's doing God's work, okay? But why is he promote? I get it. Okay, so I answered my own question hours ago when I was thinking about this. If I was somebody like Jason Whitlock, I would look into the past and I would say, well, who represents my group, my race, my tribe, whatever, who represents that thing that I'm connected to in a way that I can feel proud of in a way that I can look at and say, they took the moral high ground and I could use them as an example of taking the moral high ground as a, as a mirror for people like Will Smith and Chris Rock and just fill in the blanks, right? Jory Reed, whatever. And I thought about that and I'm like, well, okay. Since I happen to have pink skin in this lifetime, who would that be for me? I had a difficult time trying to really go, well, you know, there's this person. There's this person. The people that the people that I would probably source are the ones that are probably the most discredited. Okay. Like I would say, well, you know, Charles Lindbergh was an interesting guy. You know, he was heroic. He stood up and said uncomfortable things that were designed to keep us out of wars that were being orchestrated and run by a group of people that had absolutely zero like care and concern about the people that they were going to draft for their wars and send them overseas to get killed. Right. Lindbergh across, I think two wars basically was this clarion call. It said, don't go there. So I can say maybe Charles Lindbergh, right. But if you go back and you also look at Lindbergh, you'll get all the stuff that's connected him around anti-Semitism and blah, 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 right? So in some ways, that would kind of disqualify me if I were to go, well, what about Charles? Let's talk about Charles Lindbergh. I'd get the Eric Shaw effect. That's what would happen. So most people can't go there. Well, then where do they go? Well, they go to somebody who's probably a lot more compromised Usually for most Americans, the safe go-to is Abraham Lincoln. And that's probably not the best example you could use either. Right? Anyway, this is what Jason was just going through last night. And he was using, this is the weird part too. He was using Bill Cosby in The Cosby Show and Will Smith and the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air as these examples of things that are important to him and why they're important to the rest of us 
I'm not even sure he really like connected the dots sufficiently on the whole, the whole kind of analogy. It was kind of confusing in some ways, but they were family oriented. They were, they were black and they had humor. And so these are the things that he really values and tries to put together for a show. And I think he does a good job of it, right? Like his family is uncle Jimmy, whom I love and Shamika, whom I've had on the show and, and, uh, Dave Shannon and Delano and Royce White and TJ Moe and Steve Kim. Who cracks me up? Steve Kim's really funny. So this is what he's trying to do. But he, again, because he's got this thing where he looks for role models. That's what I'm, I'm trying to nail down. He looks for role models. And Bill Cosby's not a great role model just because he had a really good show about, um, you know, middle-class black family, right? Which is not a bad thing. I mean, it's a positive thing. I think Good Times is better, though. It was less pretentious. But Bill Cosby is, is deeply flawed. And he made a case for Bill Cosby that he didn't need roofies. Because power is the biggest aphrodisiac. So he could get any woman that he wanted to, if he wanted to. It's probably true. But what he doesn't know about Bill Cosby, or maybe he does and he doesn't want to talk about it, is that Bill Cosby is a high-ranking Mason. And I believe that every now and then, a certain group, whether it's the Masons or another group, will hang one of their own out to dry so that they can point to everybody else in the group and say, see, you step out of line, this is what will happen to you. You will be ruined. And I think Bill Cosby was one of those cases. And I know that he tried to buy NBC and all this other stuff. And you, I think with people, sometimes, again, you get the good with the bad. You know, you get the noble with the ignoble. We're human. It's part of our design in a lot of ways. Nobody's perfect. You got a devil on one shoulder, an angel on the other. But I think that the, the, uh, the, that part, him being sacrificed, I think that that was a public ritual. That's just my opinion. And as far as Will Smith goes, I think, I mean, he's clearly a Luciferian. I mean, just look at the family photos. The family photo album is filled with signs and signifiers, one hand over one eye, you know, the, the Baphomet horns. I mean, they're just, you know, he's openly like French kissing his kid on Ellen DeGeneres. Like more than one talk show, Will Smith goes through this thing where, you know, he's kissing his, his son on the lips. I'm like, you know, that's not cool. Sorry, it's not cool. And you could tell Jaden was really uncomfortable with a lot of those moments. Why was he doing that? He was doing that because he was told to do it. Anyway, I'm through with that. I just, I, I again, I, I really dig what Jason's doing. 
but I think when he starts to look for these role models, they're, they're really flawed. And he knows that I think on some level, but to the degree that he knows that, I'm not sure, especially the whole Rosa Parks thing. That was staged. That was completely astroturfed. She did that after she'd gotten all this training and they lined up the press. By the way, Rosa Parks is an Aquarian. So that fits into the uh, disruptive model, doesn't it? All right, let's talk about uh, President Clone, Clone Biden. Because we're, we're dealing with that today. He gets up there and he doesn't know where he is. Where do you, we don't even know where he is. He's in some kind of a sound stage. That's not the White House. So let me show you the uh, story on Yahoo. Biden gets second COVID booster. So isn't that the fourth shot? Why do they call it a booster? Is it fundamentally different? I don't think so. It's the fourth fucking shot, okay? Urges Congress to approve emergency funding. Yeah, let's just print more funny money. President Joe Biden rolled up his shirt sleeve and got his second COVID-19 booster shot Wednesday after launching an online one-stop center to help Americans find up-to-date information about COVID vaccines, treatments in their area. It didn't hurt a bit. Biden said after receiving his second booster of the Pfizer vaccine. So this is, this is the photo. This is an interesting photo right here. There he is. By the way, if, if you've ever seen Joe Biden's hairline from, say, the 90s, like early 90s, he's got this terrible hairline. Like there's no hair. And what did he do? Did he get like plugs or something to create this veneer of fuzz on the top of his head? Anyway, there he is on the, on the set. This, this whole thing almost looks like a green screen back here. It looks totally fake, but here's this woman, this nurse, whatever she is, and she's dressed in black. She's got this black sort of pantsuit on. She's got a black mask. And she's got these gray gloves. And if you really track this photo, right, just in terms of how it's framed and even the coloring of the, like the, so we start with Biden. He's about as white as you fucking get. 
So here we have white, right? And even here with the, the White House seal. By the way, doesn't that look upside down? It's probably not, but it looks upside down. Um, so you got this white seal, this kind of strange nimbus effect. And you go down into his arm, which is white. And all of a sudden, it's gray here. Like, gray is this kind of zone, right? And it's the inner, inner, it's, it is the interface between black and white, right? So you have this gray area right here. But where is it headed? It's headed to black. And what do we, what do we associate with black? We associate death with black. Why do we associate death with black? Well, maybe it has to do with the Saturnian black cube, the death star, or a fleck of the death star. So this is almost like a kind of a Last Supper sort of photo, just in terms of the framing. And then we have a watcher, of course. Well, you know, it's her left hand, and she's going to wear a watch. But the watch represents time. So I'm assuming here that this, is, this photo is indicative of Joe Biden's time is up. And that really who this person is, this is his angel of death. And she is injecting him with a fatal shot, a fatal booster. This is my take on this. And why? Why is this happening? Well, now all of a sudden, there's a lot of squawking about Hunter Biden's laptop. That fat fuck, Bill Barr, who couldn't and wouldn't say shit about it when it was an important thing to talk about, is now all of a sudden bringing it up. Thanks. Thanks, you tub of lard. You didn't do shit while you were... Attorney Bill Barr, and I've talked about this before, his, his, his role was to be the fixer for Trump with the impeachment. And his payback was for you, the United States government with Trump pulling the levers, actually giving Barr the consent to pull the levers because Barr, Barr is the uh, Department of Justice, right? And the attorney general, Bill Barr was the attorney general. And that was to deal with both Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell. By the way, you hear nothing about Ghislaine Maxwell anymore. She's just disappeared, just like Jeffrey Epstein. So Barr's payback was that he was going to be able to clean that up because his fingerprints are all over that shit, right? His dad hired Jeffrey Epstein. His dad ran a private school in New York and hired Jeffrey Epstein to teach math. His dad wrote this weird kind of pedophile science fiction novel. So Bill Barr is there to, he's there to take care of that shit from the inside out so he could have access to whatever kind of executive power or executive order or executive action that, you know, he could, he could uh, flex. 
And then he, he would basically go in and make sure that Trump wouldn't be fully impeached. That was, I believe that was the deal. That was how I perceived what happened because that's the only fucking thing he did was help Trump not be impeached. And he surely got the benefit of being able to manage the whole Epstein Maxwell thing. And he did. So now all of a sudden he's indignant. All these people now are beginning to get indignant. And apparently there's some kind of more wider ranging investigation going on inside of the uh, Department of Justice. Why would the Biden administration begin a deeper investigation of the president's son? I'm not saying that's not happening, but why would they do that? Why would that happen? Because they, number one, I think they want to control the narrative. Whether they disprove it or whether they're able to uh, get Hunter Biden on, let's say, tax evasion. Or let's say, um, I don't know, uh, some kind of SEC violations insider trading, whatever, right? Like that's the lesser of the sins that Hunter Biden is culpable of having enacted. Apparently he's got all these encryption keys to the Department of Defense on his laptop. And these are encryption keys that have a really long lifespan. Like they, they are, they, it's like a 20 year um, access with these various encryption keys, super long. What is he doing with those encryption keys on his computer? <laughs> I mean, that's crazy. That's absolutely crazy. So if you play this out, and of course there's the, you know, the uh, uh, extortion with the Chinese and you know, he'd go there and apparently they would just give him all kinds of blow and crystal meth and they'd set him up with you know, whatever he needed. And then they would, you know, extort the shit out of him. They give him money and he's like, oh, okay, well, okay, I'll do this for you. I'll do this for you. I'll do this for you. Because they ultimately had all these photos. And do I think Hunter Biden really cared about those photos? No, I don't think he cared. He has no shame at all. None whatsoever. If he could, he'd probably like mint them into M and, uh, NFTs. He'd be very proud of them. So why is this all happening now? Well, they want to control the narrative. That's number one. Number two, I think that that if this thing becomes volatile, because they want to they want to they want to contain it. But if it becomes volatile and they can't contain it then they need to remove the person who is closest to Hunter Biden that it would affect the most. And I'm not talking about Jim Biden, who I still believe is Hunter's dad. I'm talking about the big man, the big guy. And I think that they are getting ready to remove him. And this shot might be the thing that will actually do it. I mean, at this point, you don't, you don't know what are inside these vials. 
I mean, you may think, you know, you may think that you're getting, even if it's the worst case scenario, you may think you're getting a uh, nano cocktail in an MRNA um, technology. And you may think that that's what you're getting. And you might be, but you might be getting something even worse than that. So Biden doesn't know what he's getting. Oh, where am I? Whoa, we're doing this now. What is this? Uh, so I think that this is the shot. And you go back and you look at that picture. And it's, to me, the symbolism is clear. You go from the white, the uber white of Joe Biden, and you go into that gray area with the hands, you know, the inner zone between the black and the white. And then you have the watch, which is the time. And then you have the maiden of death. This is, this is the angel of death right here. She's delivering him. On Sunday night show, uh, David and I were talking about that he's on his way out. We both agreed on it. It's in his chart. You can see it. And he said two weeks on the show. And I get, I think that's about right now. We actually were texting about that last night a little bit. And um, yeah, I think, I think this is, this is the, the stage managing Joe Biden right out of the picture. And because of the Hunter Biden laptop stuff, there's no there there anymore. Right. Hunter Biden goes through maybe a bread and circus trial, show trial, like Derek Chauvin gets popped on lesser charges, pretends to go into some kind of a prison somewhere and then whatever happens, right? And then who do we have? We've got President Kamala. And more than likely Vice President butt plug. I saw this image with, um, how did I find it? Where was it? If I still have it up here. Um, it was an image of what's his name? Pete Buttigieg, Pete Buttplug's uh, husband. whatever he is. Chasten. 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 He's 32 years old. His real name is Chasten Glesman. Who is this guy? He's an American writer. Let's just see what he's got here. Buttigieg was born Chaston James Geisman on June 23rd, 
1989 in Traverse City, Michigan, to Cherie Nipalon and Terry Glesman, owners of a landscaping business. The youngest of three brothers, he was raised in Chum's Corner in a conservative Roman Catholic family. As a teenager, Buddy Edge worked at a cherry product store called Cherry Republic and drove tractors on his grandfather's cherry farm in Sutton's Bay. He won a blue ribbon in pit spitting at the National Cherry Festival. Buddy Edge attended Traverse City West Senior High School and spent his senior year as an exchange student in Germany. He took classes at Northwestern Michigan College before attending the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. He graduated in 2014 with a bachelor's degree in theater and global studies. It's perfect, perfect for this world. Later, Buddy Gidge attended DePaul University in Chicago, where he received a Master of Education in 2017. That summer, Buddy Gidge began an AMS MACTE certificate from Xavier University. Those are all Jesuit schools, by the way. After graduating from college, Buttigieg moved to Milwaukee, where he worked as a teaching artist for First Stage. Blah, 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 blah. Uh, let's see. Okay. So they met in 2015. They got engaged in December 2017 at O'Hare International Airport. And they were married at the Episcopal Cathedral St. James in South Bendover. All right. So I want to see this. There's this one photo that I wanted to show you. Okay. Let's do this. So you find this photo. Yeah, it's, this is kind of close. This is kind of close. This is close to the uh, image. So I can find it here. Yeah, here we go. So apparently, uh, they turned uh, the White House into a gay disco. Right, this is a Pride Month. You see that? Let's visit this, see if we can get in here. There he is. We have the openly transgender youth, Ashton Moda. The whole thing is a circus. It's just a clown show. There's Buddy Gage. President Biden will appoint Jessica Stern to be the U.S. Special Envoy to Advance Human Rights, LGBTQIA+. Right. This is 
They all were in their purple pink ties. That's a set, right? This is just a set. I don't know where this is, but it's a set. Oh, the Pulse Nightclub, National Pulse Memorial. So they've turned the Pulse Nightclub event into like Stonewall 2.0. It's it's their their Holocaust Memorial, the Pulse Nightclub. This is absolutely and utterly dangerous. The normalization of this will be the downfall of our country and the downfall of the West. And it's all premeditated. It's completely premeditated. And they're go so when you look at the evolution of where we are with the normalization, ultimately a pedophilia, because that's where it's all going. I talked about this fucking years ago. It's all moving towards the normalization of pedophilia. That's why they're having all this concerted effort to get into schools so that they can groom your kids and make it acceptable for your kids to willingly consent to having relationships with so-called adults. And this was talked about many years ago that they are working and have been working on a children's bill of rights and in the children's bill of rights, it will exclusively state that the child has its own rights and prerogative to indulge or embrace any kind of lifestyle that it wants. And to, and if you as a parent say no to that, you are in violation of your child's rights and your child could be removed from you. We are a whisker away from that. And that's where it's all headed. So the, the, the pedophiles will be indemnified. And, you know, we can see like what's going on with certain forms of legend, they you know, say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna pass this, we're, we're gonna pass this, we're gonna so whatever you think of Ron DeSantis and this whole thing in Florida, like it's a it's kind of a hard stop. Okay, you're not gonna have these materials in our schools. We're, we're not going to allow it. And I'll be honest with you, I haven't gone through the entire bill, so I don't know if there's any loopholes or back doors. So on the surface, it sounds reasonable. And the way that the people who are against the bill are acting unreasonable, I think it would be probably safe to say that it does what it sets out to do. And you look at this woman who is the vice president of Disney, who has a transgender kid and a pansexual kid, and she's coming out and saying, look, this is bullshit. We need more trans and pan. Uh, programming to be representative in 
this is this is where everything starts to just slide just right off the the continental shelf right and right into the pacific ocean and it's because these people have been put into power they've been put into power specifically for exactly this and the destruction of the fabric of the United States of America, whatever you think this country, that is what they're tasked to do. Do they know it? Oh, I bet quite a few do. And they're gleeful over the fact that this is what they're doing. And it's dangerous. Because the children are really the, the, the last ring of theoretical innocence and the place where we can hopefully instill them with morals and values. And it's open season on them now. And it's open season on parents. And everything that we've gone through for the last two years, in its own way, either directly or indirectly, has contributed to the parents' lack of empowerment. You don't want your kid vaxxed, tough shit. You're getting a call from CPS. School, vaxxing up your kids without your knowledge, tough shit. We got your kids' consent. We don't need your. We don't need your consent. Do you see? That's how contribute. How that's contributing to this other thing that they that they want to put together. They don't care about parents. All they care about is getting to your kids, and then ultimately, what they care about is that retroactively. You know, all the perverts that have been involved in pedophilia will get a pass. That's what's going to happen. That's what they want. And then moving forward, it's open season. And, you know, we're dealing with the plague of Babylon. So these are really, this, this is a big issue. Really, really big issue. And when the other side pushes back and screams and uh, protests like they've been over the past, month or so with this whole Florida thing, you know that it's kind of like throwing holy water on a vampire. That's what you're getting. And it's, it's unfortunate that we've gotten to this place because the canker, the worm has infested, absolutely infested the fruit. And uh, I'm not sure how at this point we flush this thing out because it's, it's, gotten to the point where it is close to metastasizing. And, and I suppose that any kind of real pushback, hard pushback, would label you something along the lines of what played Eric Shaw. Okay. Um, I think I'm out of here for today. It's a beautiful spring day, unless you're somewhere in Tennessee, in which case it's not so beautiful. But do your best to connect with the time of the season. Do your best to unplug from, you know, these these uh, pernicious systems. Don't worry, I'll be your filter. You can take a day off. You can come back tomorrow or Monday and 
I'm sure I'll have plenty to talk about, even though you may have missed some time. I'll be your filter. And uh, enjoy life. Take a day off and enjoy life. Do something that brings you something pleasant outside of the box. Go for a walk. Ride a bike. Rent a kayak. Whatever those things are. Whatever it is for you. Maybe do it today, tomorrow, the weekend. Just allow yourself some downtime and have a bit of a minor reset for your own biocircuitry. Tomorrow, hopefully we'll have the Krimis on. I got to rally with them and see what we want to talk about. But it is their day tomorrow over on the Friday forecast side of things. And um, I'm sure we'll have plenty to talk about. But until then, it's springtime, kids. Coming into that Aries new moon. Make a resolution. Embrace life. Say yes to the possibility of creativity and the expression of the high spirit of God through you in your own individual and unique way. And don't forget, use your head in order to discern what's real, your heart to set what's possible. If you're listening on the podcast, you can always come over here to 15minutesofflame.com and take part in the chat and see the video stream live. In the meantime, take care and bye for now.